Welcome to Healthcare Experience Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation and is dedicated to transforming the healthcare experience so that every person can receive and deliver the best care. We invite you to learn more by visiting healthcareexperience.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Experience Matters. We have Dr. David Zoss joining us today for a powerful discussion about his story. He is the Medical University of South Carolina Charleston Division CEO, and I want to welcome him now. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zoss. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. And before we delve into this powerful story in earnest, I just want you to first give our listeners a little bit of your professional background and what went into your career and how you got to where you're at today. No, glad to uh, summarize, and I'll try to be brief to summarize, you know, an amazing journey over more than 20 years. So uh, at heart, fundamentally, I am a physician scientist trained uh, at some world-class academic medical centers, uh, initially as not only a physician, but with a basic science interest in cell biology and really learned how to think and solve problems and mentor uh, at the bench uh, with PhD scientists. Uh, Was fortunate during almost 20 years uh, at Duke to have amazing mentors, role models uh, that allowed me to develop not only as a scientist and a physician, but eventually as a leader. And the real opportunity to lead programs, starting with uh, lung transplant and organ transplantation programs, to refine my skills uh, with an MBA uh, at Duke, and then opportunities to lead both in the School of Medicine, our faculty practice, and the health system. So really privileged to have the opportunity to have so many great opportunities in a career that I probably would have never predicted, but really motivated by, you know, where can I make the biggest impact and a real passion for following, you know, really excellent leaders who were committed to the mission and values of the organization. Most recently, I joined uh, our team here at Medical University of South Carolina in June of 2020, as we were uh, right in the midst of the pandemic. The, as you said, the CEO for our Charleston division and the chief clinical officer for our growing health system and really the opportunity to lead this great team in a, in a time where right leadership is probably more important than ever uh, as we deal with this crisis. So thank you for the opportunity. And we're calling this podcast episode Reflections of Transformation from a Physician Leader to Patient and Back. That gives us a little foreshadowing on what today's discussion is going to be about. I'm going to ask you to tell us about that day. Your life changed forever. Just describe for us what happened. Yeah. So like many physicians, physician leaders, right? I'm traditionally not a very good patient. Didn't think I needed to see a primary care physician. I was married to a physician uh, and worked uh, closely. But in January of 2017, I knew something was wrong. I knew for several weeks that I didn't feel right, that I was fatigued, that I was short of breath, that I was developing a skin rash, figured I was getting old. I was 45, so I needed to uh, maybe spend more time in the gym, but it continued to get harder. Again, not probably the best advice, but really 
saw a friend and a colleague was concerned that I had leukemia based on a lot of my symptoms, asked him to draw some labs. And unfortunately, my clinical diagnostic skills were too good. Uh, and on Valentine's Day of 2017, I opened up my chart to see my lab results and realized that I was anemic. My white count was elevated. My platelets were low and that my diagnosis was right and that I most likely had leukemia, which had been led to those last several weeks of symptoms. I had never been sick a day in my life. Uh, I had never routinely seen physicians outside of orthopedic surgery injuries um, that we've all encountered over time. And your world changes on the dime uh, when all of a sudden you go from being a 45-year-old with two adolescent boys working too many hours, but life going really, really well in personally and professionally to looking at a diagnosis and your own mortality. Uh, and it's hard to describe the emotions that race through your mind at that moment to realize that no, all that stuff that you worry about that you've been working for for years is no longer as important as it was. And that, right, the playing field has shifted and your priorities have changed and your worries when you're worried up that day trying to go through your to-do list and, and meetings and others. And now your worries shift to say, right, am I going to beat this? Am I going to live to see my kids grow up? Am I going to see them graduate high school and get married and all those milestones we think of uh, and knowing that as a physician, in some ways, you know too much because you understand the severity. But as a pulmonologist and not an oncologist, right, I really know very little uh, about the diagnosis that I just made. So, uh, again, really fortunate to have so many uh, close friends, family, uh, an amazing wife and, and children that supported me through that, uh, as well as an amazing team at work. But clearly a day that shocked the system uh, and really changed me forever. And you mentioned that healthcare providers traditionally do not make the best patients. I'm curious as to why, why you have that perspective. You know, I, I think, and again, probably a, a sense of hubris as a, a physician that we know enough that we tend to really push our independence. We don't like to always rely on others. And being honest, right, I was I was good at keeping myself in shape uh, and taking care of myself, but I wasn't good at recognizing that I needed help from others because that wasn't what our culture had created uh, over the years. But that day, it really changed. And I really learned that to be successful, right, I needed that team. Uh, I needed not only the physicians and the nurses but I needed my wife and kids and parents, and I needed my colleagues at work to say, how do I step out of the role as a hospital CEO so I can take care of myself and my family over the next six months? But there's some really good lessons in there, right, around we are so much better when we are dependent on our teams, when we don't try to 
do it all ourselves. When we realize that, you know, we need others' help and others really want to help. Um, and I really embrace that as a patient um, in terms of embracing transparency around my illness, understanding the sincerity when people offered help that they really wanted to help uh, and I needed it and that it was important for them and for me to be willing to accept that help. So now I reflect as a leader, right, over four years, beyond almost four and a half years now, beyond that date of, uh, right, how do you maintain that ability to really bring people in and to be truly accepting help of others and that it's good for them and good for me? Can you tell us about some of your fears and worries as a patient? What was going through your mind? So... As a physician, I realized quickly that this was a medical emergency. I was admitted to the hospital the next morning, quickly moved up to Johns Hopkins to enroll in a phase one trial when I realized that I had every poor prognostic sign and that with traditional treatments, that my survival was less than 20%. That ability and that desire to, you know, ensure that I was doing everything I could to survive as much for my wife and kids, more so than for me, to want to see those milestones. Part of that for me was the ability to really reach out and find that opportunity of research and innovation for something that may give me better odds and traditional therapies. What I didn't realize was that, you know, leaving home for the next six months would separate me so much from my family that was so much that I was fighting for. As a physician, right, I spend lots of nights in the hospital. I used to love working ICU nights as a physician, my favorite time in the hospital. As a patient, I hated nights in the hospital. I made my wife go home. She needed to take care of herself. She needed to sleep and stay with a friend. The staff was outstanding, but the rooms are cold. The beds aren't comfortable. Your mind is racing. All the thoughts that you try to push to the side would come back in as you sit there and worry around Were you going to live to see those moments? Was your wife going to be a single mom trying to raise two kids? And no matter how much you don't want to think about all the negative and the risk, at night, I couldn't push those thoughts away. It also timed up that by far, that was when I felt the worst. The drenching sweats, the physical discomfort, the pain seemed to be worse. Uh, And together, both the physical symptoms, the emotional stress of not being able to suppress those thoughts, and, and even for those few hours at night, realizing, right, you were there in your room was really, really difficult uh, and something that I probably had never imagined. And it wasn't that 
and the staff was in the team and the nurses were unbelievable. But I myself realized, right, all of my fears couldn't be pushed away. Um, at the same point, it helped me figure out, you know, I need to have a strategy of how I'm going to move forward. I needed to figure out what I can control. I couldn't decide whether I was going to be successful or not. I couldn't decide whether I was going to live or die. It was out of my control. I had amazing physicians. I had access to care and a phase one research that eventually got breakthrough status by the FDA. But what could I do, right? I could focus on my own care of how what I could be physically and mentally tough enough to do whatever was needed. And I channeled that energy into getting up every morning between six and seven, trying to walk six miles a day in the hospital or on the stationary bike, no matter what I felt like, no matter how bad I was, in order to ensure right that I was doing everything I could. I wasn't going to let my kids down. I couldn't guarantee success, but I could outwork anyone in order to ensure that I was able to do give to make those odds as good as possible. All this empathy that you were able to gain for the patient experience, how does that impact your role right now as the CEO of Medical University of South Carolina Charleston Division, as a, as a provider, as, as how you work with other healthcare providers? How does what you learned as a patient and all that empathy you gained, how does that impact your role now? So I, I think it fundamentally changes all of us, right? It's impossible not to be impacted by such a, a journey, by not just the fear of your own mortality, but by the experience inside the hospital, outside the hospital. As a pulmonary physician and a hospital CEO, I would have thought I was patient centered. Um, and, and I really believe I was sincere, but I think the perspective and definition of patient-centered changes. The patients aren't our only customer. The patients and families are going through this together. My wife and kids went through the same journey I did, in some ways harder than what I had to do. As a leader and as a physician, do I always, have I always considered the families, our customer as much as the patient? And how would we deliver care differently if we realized that, right, and I keep using the word customer to be provocative a little bit, but patients are our customer uh, in the most respectful way. But the patients and families are our customer, and we need to meet all of their needs, which is not just the ability to provide outstanding care, right? It's communication, it's support, it's how you develop trust. Uh, realizing that as much as the physical challenges that I went through over six months, right? The psychological and emotional challenges are significantly larger. I tell my wife, I said, I could do this six times, right? I, I could survive physically and do that over and over again. And I would go do it again. And I wouldn't say no. Physically, not a problem. 
emotionally and psychologically, I would need to really prepare myself and them because it's hard. The second piece as an academic physician scientist that's changed my mind a little bit is, and I used to be a, you know, always envisioning research as a way that patients were giving back to help others. I'll be honest, I took a risk and enrolled in a phase one trial because I was selfish. I wanted to do everything I can for my family and myself to improve my chances to survive. And the fact that it helped others is great, but my motivation was that I didn't want to die. Uh, And I think it's important that we realize that that psychological importance for me of feeling like I have done everything I can was absolutely critical. The night I drove from Durham up to Baltimore and my oncologist came into the floor and met with us at midnight and described the treatment plan and the clinical research and that my 13-year-old son would be the donor for a bone marrow transplant. I looked at my wife and I said, whether I live or die, I am okay. And she said, you're not giving up. And I said, I am not giving up in the least bit. But psychologically, emotionally, I have complete trust in the amazing care that we had at Duke and at Hopkins, that we had a path and that I was doing absolutely everything I could within my power. And I needed that in my mind in order to get through that battle, Um, that component of trust and that component of really feeling that I had no doubt that I was doing everything I could. So how does that change you? I'm being long to get back to your question as a leader, right? How do we give that to every patient? How do we ensure that what patients and families want is trust? And what patients and families want is to feel that they have done everything that they can in order to achieve their desired goals, whatever their goals may be. And I don't think we teach that. I don't think we teach that in med school or or leaders. We talk about tactics, but I think we really need to think about the why and what what, what are patients and families looking from within their engagement within hospitals, health systems, and their care teams. Are you specifically thinking more along the lines of there's a need for more compassionate leadership training? Is that what you're getting at? Let me phrase it a little bit differently. And um, so I I think my experience highlights the need for a focus on compassion within healthcare at multiple different levels. And the pandemic has even highlighted, I think, this urgency and crisis and need for how we talk about compassion. The first that we focus on in my mind is actually compassion for ourselves. This idea of self-compassion, which no one talked about during medical school or my residency or business school and healthcare leadership, but healthcare is hard. It's always been hard and it's only getting harder, right? With the stress and challenges we're under. And if we don't have the ability to provide compassion for ourselves and for our care team members, we can't deliver it to others. So as a leader, I talk to our team 
a lot about the importance of, you know, right? We talk about have, having empathy for yourself, having that desire to really wish for a positive outcome with yourself and your own work, being forgiving that we're not perfect in stressful situations and always striving for the best and realize that if you don't have self-compassion, I really do believe it leads to burnout. Uh, it leads to turnover. It leads to safety errors. It leads to problems in, in service and others. The second piece of, or a pillar of compassion, right, is how do we provide as care team members, and we're all care team members, right, whether you're supply chain, whether you're EVS, whether you're nutrition, whether you're a physician or a nurse, right, we're all care team members, that compassion for patients and to understand, right, what they're going through. How many of my team recognize how difficult those nights were for me and how hard of time I was having and understanding that we can provide outstanding clinical care, right? Best medicines, best surgery, but if we don't provide that compassion in those interactions and to understand the patient and family needs, we're not going to achieve our, our goals. And really differentiating that compassion is not empathy, that they're very different, uh, right? That empathy is putting yourself in someone's shoes. But compassion, right, is really, you know, hoping and trying to improve the well-being of someone else, right? So it's not only being in their shoes, but it's intentional to improve that well-being, which really, I think, distinguishes compassion. And I would encourage people that they are not interchangeable. And then the third pillar of compassion is leadership. And when we think around leaders within healthcare and right, how are leaders going to be successful? And uh, right, yeah, they need to be smart and they need to be experienced and they need to have skills. But those are easy, right? Those are the easy parts of leadership. There's a lot of people that can do our jobs if all that is required is the knowledge and the wisdom to do the job. The successful leader pairs that right with the compassion to be able to develop those relationships with their teams, with the community, with others, right? They have the ability, right, to listen to their teams. They have the ability to understand their challenges and to work together to improve the care team and the environment so they can achieve those goals. So, when we talk in our leadership development programs, right, we too often focus on tactics. Uh, and what we don't talk enough about is that critical skill set. The core competency of leadership is pairing the knowledge and skills with the compassion to be able to have the team really achieve excellence. And what about trust? I want to ask a little bit about that. Can you reflect on the importance of trust both as a patient and as a provider? I think trust is something that we don't talk enough about in thinking around what does the patient want? And we, I remember all the teaching I had during medical school and residency about the importance of giving people information and the importance of, um, you know, the patient and family is a decision maker. And we learned a lot and we did all of our classes and communication. And um, 
And I don't think I ever understood why. Um, and the real answer gets down to trust. Um, and if we frame the question differently to say that what patients and families need in that relationship, and it's a relationship, right? We shouldn't be a transactional business. We're in the relationship business. And the relationship that patients need to have with their providers and their nurses, some patients are going to want lots of information. And all those things I learned in school are really, really valuable. Other patients, like myself, didn't want a lot of information. I didn't read any articles around leukemia. I didn't ask a lot of questions. I had complete trust in my team. I understood what my role and what I could do. And I had a certain level of information, which is what I needed. So I think when we think around building programs to train our nurses and our physicians and our team members. It's not giving information for the sake of information. It's really that ability to have compassion, to understand what that patient and family needs and how we meet those needs. There'll be some patients and families that want lots of information and lots of data, and that's what we need to do to meet them. But sometimes those needs and those requests are due to the fact that we haven't achieved trust. And if we haven't achieved trust, right, that is their, their manifestation. And to really focus on not making it cookie cutter, not that it's that we treat every patient the same in terms of the care, but we as clinicians assess their needs, assess how we achieve that trust and what do we need to get there. And I think trust is critical to that healthy relationship, uh, right? What, why? I really believe it impacted my outcome. I, I truly, as a scientist, I, I am sure I'm wrong. But as a human being, I believe that that relationship that I had with my care team and the trust we had was part of the reason that I had such a great outcome. And so I challenge our clinicians that are out there, right? We've all had interactions where, you know, it's human nature. We're frustrated and that, that relationship and patient position isn't always healthy. And there's lots of questions and uncertainty and distrust. Establishing trust is critical. And if we do that, it not only will improve our safety scores, improve our experience scores, it's going to improve patient outcomes. But we need to be good enough to figure out how for that family, for that person, we develop that trust to have that healthy relationship. And Dr. Zas, I'm just going to ask this next question bluntly. We talked about the clinical trial and some of the world-class care you received. So why are you left today? What went right? So in our journey for high reliability, right, we often use the analogy of the Swiss cheese model where the holes line up and, and air reaches a, a patient. In, in my journey, I actually use the Swiss cheese analogy differently. Like everything lined up for me to have, you know, an amazing outcome. I'm four and a half years after my diagnosis. I'm over four years post a bone marrow transplant from my teenage son. And I'm not just healthy, but I've never felt better in my life and thriving. It isn't one piece, but everything lined up for me. And in some ways, I feel guilty. I had access to knowledge 
and the healthcare and providers and clinical research that absolutely every patient should have. I had access to care with insurance and an employer and others that were compassionate and supportive. I had amazing family support from my wife and kids and parents and extended family. I had treatment uh, as part of this clinical trial and innovation and research that even weeks or months earlier wouldn't have been available. And I think part of it is I was able to develop that trust and a certain level of commitment that I was going to work as hard as I could to ensure that I had the best outcome possible, whatever that may be. Without any single one of those, I don't think I would be here today, at least not in the way that I am right now. Part of what motivates me as a leader, doesn't everyone deserve that outcome? Doesn't everyone deserve transparency of knowledge, access to care, insurance and financial support to survive through the challenges? as well as the the trust and relationships with their care team. So go back to your earlier question when you said, how has it changed me as a leader? Maybe in the biggest way, right? um, We will never achieve that goal. Um, In some ways, we talk about striving for perfect patient care as part of our our lean journey. And here, right, I'm striving for, right, what what is perfect patient care? for all patients that are in need somewhere I was that day. And how do we ensure that we continue to get there? And right, every day, how do we get closer? How do we improve access? So everyone can get access the next day for care. How do we improve transparency of knowledge and information that people know the trials are available? How do we build systems of support for those that don't have the insurance or financial resources because everyone who was 45 years old and otherwise healthy and facing a life-threatening disease deserves what I was fortunate enough to have. And that's a pretty big motivator as a leader to say, right, of how do I at least get closer to that for everyone every day? August 1st, 2017. I'm sure that date for you is significant. That was the day you returned to work after all we've discussed. So what was that day like? Take us through that. I'll tell a short story, which probably highlights my personality. I underwent a bone marrow transplant on May 24th. And as I was starting the bone marrow transplant, I remember looking over at my oncologist and I said, when can I return to work? And he goes, we'd like you to take six months off. And I jokingly said, that wasn't the question I asked. When can I return to work? Um, And he said, well, let's try for 90 days. So I phrased the question a third time. And I said, when's the fastest that anyone's returned to work? And he said, day 60. And in my mind, I needed a goal. And I was determined to beat that record. So I returned at day 55. Because... I needed to have something to strive for uh, as a goal-oriented 
numbers. Fast forward to August 1st, I was the CEO of Duke Rowley Hospital. My team had done an amazing job in my absence um, and really not missed a beat, but I was determined to hit that milestone. The emotions of walking into that hospital and that team. Over the last several weeks, they had been a huge part of my support, not just my family. They had worn t-shirts in my honor. They had raised money to support leukemia research. They had done bone marrow drives to help ensure that others have access to donors in my honor. My 11-year-old had shaved nurse's hair uh, as everyone was shaving their head uh, symbolically to help support me and to raise money for a really good cause. So you can imagine after months of you know letters, calls, videos, support, it was emotionally really, really hard to walk back in, but it truly was coming back into family uh, and to a place where more than ever I recognized how much they cared for me and how much they cared for all of their patients. And that level of compassion that they showed me, they they demonstrate every day in in microcosms and elements that they show with families. The dedication and compassion and commitment of our nurses. And it just played through my mind, uh, right? Because I was now experiencing it from the whole community. But they were doing that every day, right? And you could think of the stories, but I'd never appreciated it in the way that I have. In all honesty, on August 1st, I didn't feel very well. And I didn't feel very well for around three months or longer. But the team continued to realize that for me, I needed to be back. I needed to be there, even if I wasn't 100%. And they supported me through it. And it goes back to the again, lessons learned and principles of the importance of willing, the willingness to allow others to help. The willingness to embrace that team and that true humble leadership that is dependent on really accepting that help. And for my first several months back, trust me, I really needed it. I had some really bad days. I've not missed a day of work since that day in August 1st of 2017, despite the ups and downs and mostly ups. But it really is, they have given me so much. My team there at Duke, my team here in Charleston at the Medical University of South Carolina. I think as leaders, we don't always appreciate the privilege that we have to be in our roles. It's a privilege and an honor to get the opportunity to lead within our healthcare organizations. And it's not easy. And sometimes we focus on why it's hard and it's difficult. And instead we need to focus on, we get to lead hundreds and thousands of people that are impacting communities, that are impacting others. And I think if we focus on 
that level of gratitude and humility and the privilege we have that we'll be successful as leaders and we'll achieve our goals and, and impact. And, you know, the, the tears did not stop as I came back that day and a lot of days for the next several weeks. The chance to speak to the, everyone, the chance to, you know, have everyone come over and say hi. Right? At the same point, you're scared that you're so immunocompromised that you don't know how close you want people to get to you. But at the same point, you want to embrace all of them. So uh, I was really, really fortunate. Is there anything you want to say about the importance of research and innovation? One of my lessons learned during my own journey was that offering patients access to research and innovation is patient-centered. And we need to be able to break down those barriers to ensure that, again, the patient and family as our customer, they want and need to feel like they are doing everything possible. And we need to redesign our systems and processes to say the patient having access and the choice towards research and innovation is part of our role as an academic health system at every place where we deliver care and creating that transparency of knowledge and, and it's great that uh, we appreciate patients for advancing knowledge to help others. But I would remind our, our care team members and our physicians and our nurses and others that it's patient-centered, that it's what the patient and family, they deserve and need to have that choice. And that's our primary goal. The advancing knowledge and benefiting others is a really, really good side effect. Uh, and something that is really, really, really valuable. But my hypothesis would be that if we frame access to research as compassionate, and if we frame access to research and innovation as patient-centered, we'll find a way to break down those barriers to create more transparency around research opportunities where more patients and families whether I would be alive today or not without a phase one trial on a medication that wasn't approved uh, until a year later, right? No one will ever know. In the back of my mind, I think that research and innovation, even if it was a safety trial, saved my life. Without a doubt, psychologically, mentally, emotionally for my family, it was absolutely vital. If you have anything else you'd like to add to this discussion, anything else about the need for support and reliance on coworkers, friends, families as a patient, or any other way that this experience has changed the way you interact with patients, uh, any other reflections? As we wrap up, what I, I really would love to thank all of our healthcare team members, not just here at MUSC or Duke or Hopkins, but across the nation. I think the last 18 months in the pandemic has stressed all of us in healthcare, outside of healthcare. My patient journey, the more recent challenges we've had here in the COVID pandemic, we all owe a debt of gratitude to the amazing healthcare workers that every day are demonstrating that compassion 
the compassion for themselves to develop their resilience in a really stressful time, the compassion that they show to patients and families in a stressed system where sometimes now families can't even be at the bedside of their dying loved ones and the compassion that they've shown as leaders and innovation in designing systems of care. We talk that our mission is improving the health of South Carolina and beyond. As I finished our town hall last week, I sincerely said to our team, we have achieved that mission more in the last 18 months than we ever have before. That's true here at MUSC. That's true across the nation. So I say thank you to all of our healthcare heroes and our healthcare workers and our frontline nurses and all of our team members. You are making an enormous impact every day. And we are all grateful for the privilege to lead as well as the privilege to know all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dr. David Zoss and his powerful story. It really speaks for itself. There's nothing really I can add. We hope to have you back on this podcast again. Thank you. And I look forward to joining you. And thank you to all of our healthcare heroes uh, everywhere. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.